Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor, and I am here today with another one of your hosts. Hello, everybody. I am Monica Estrella Negra, and I am only the second person in this wondrous trio. The third person being me, Sarah Century. And not only are we three here, but we are here with a guest, and that is Wendy Chen Tanner. Wendy, thank you for being here. Please introduce yourself to our guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Wendy Chin Tanner, and I am one of the co-publishers at Wave Blue World, among other things. I'm also a novelist and a poet and a graphic novelist. And um, I also used to teach undergraduate sociology. And I'm the mother of two daughters. That's that's another thing. (laughs) That's a pretty big thing. All of your accomplishments seem pretty huge. We got in touch with you because uh, Jesse Post sent some stuff over, and I was like, right, why haven't we talked to Wendy Chen Tanner of A Wave Blue World yet? (laughs) So I'm excited to have you here, but I also wanted to talk to you, I guess, just to kick it off and ask what kind of started A Wave Blue World. When did that even come into being, and what have been some of your goals that you've had with the publishing company? Yeah, Um, Great question. So um, my husband, Tyler, and I started A Wave Blue World in 2005, which is a super long time ago. It is um, the same year that we got married. We actually started the company the same summer that we got married. Um, So we're coming up to our 17th anniversary pretty soon, both our wedding anniversary and our uh, company anniversary. So, you know, it started out as a family company and it remains a family company and it's grown with with our family, I guess. And, um, you know, we decided to start it because when we met, I was doing my PhD in sociology and Tyler was in art school at the Kubert School. Um, I had, you know, been into comics for, for most of my life. You know, my dad was super into comics. He was a child of the 50s, you know, so he was really into comics and Um, I'm an only child. So, you know, every Saturday we would go down to the, you know, local bodega. I grew up in Brooklyn and where they had all the newspapers, all the chocolates and a comic stand. You know, they had a spinner rack and my dad let me pick whatever I wanted. So, you know, I, I grew up with a healthy love of comics and then let them go for a while. But then when I met Tyler, he was obviously super into comics and he was like, okay, so you have to read all of this stuff. And, you know, he, he gave me all this, like, you know, really exciting foundational graphic novels, like a hundred bullets and Persepolis and mouse. And, you know, all of these things that were like really quite different from what I had grown up reading, obviously, which Mm -hmm. were superhero comics and stuff like that. So, you know, it kind of, it gave me this sense that, oh, wow. So comics is a medium is really expansive. 
it can it can really say a lot about our world, which of course, as I found out more and more about the history of comics, it always has. Comics has always yeah. been this like very political medium, right? Because Superman, for example, was a commentary on World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to being an academic, I've always, like my first love in literature has always been poetry. I was writing poetry at the same time and Tyler was um, in art school. And then when he finished and, you know, when I started really accelerating with my poetry career, we decided, okay, we're going to start this comics company. In large part, I think, because, you know, we both have issues with authority and (laughs) didn't, didn't want to be, Tyler really didn't want to be employed by another company. He wanted to do things the way he wanted to do them. And for me, that was like not a weird thing at all. I come from an entrepreneurial family. My parents have an art supply store in Brooklyn. So that was like really not weird for me at all to be like, hey, let's just start a company and, you know, right when we're we're starting our family. So that's what we did. <laughs> and from the inception of Wave Blue World, because of, I guess, my background in sociology, like my background in sociology is in cultural studies, race and ethnicity, identity, discourse analysis. And um, that sort of foundation has made me incredibly interested and invested in activism on many fronts, literary activism, artistic activism. Um, And Tyler actually, before he went to art school, he was a humanitarian aid worker. So as as well as um, a public school teacher. So, you know, we both come from this like very progressive, entrenched in politics background. And so we really brought that to our love of story and to our company. So from the very beginning, we wanted to make comics. We wanted to make books that were socially conscious and that had something to say about the world. Yeah, that's so interesting. I want to take it back almost to the beginning, but also tie in some of the stuff you were just talking about. Because I was also a spinner rat kid. I remember getting comic books. You know, you would go to the convenience store or whatever. You would see them (laughs) kind of off in the background or whatever. This was my experience because I was buying at gas stations in rural towns and stuff in the Midwest. But, you know, regardless, I think it's pretty universal that whenever you're a kid and you see, you know, an X-Men comic or some Archie comics or something like that at the back, there's kind of this message that that's for you, right? So I always remember trying to get into comics, you know, getting as many comics as I could. And I also have a lot of interest in having socially conscious comics, I guess. And I was wondering what were some of the first ones that you were picking up? Because I always think that, you know, getting into X-Men or something like that probably... Or even Archie, honestly, there's a ton of commentary in Archie that like maybe you aren't fully conscious of as a kid or I wasn't necessarily. But as you get older, you go, oh, (laughs) there was a lot more to this, I guess. Or maybe comics, I just always envisioned them as being that. So, yeah. Have you thought about that at all, I guess? Yeah. Let me let me think back to like early childhood. Okay, so. Actually, the comic that really, really grabbed me when I was really little, like I want to say like six or seven, I'm a little bit too old, I think, for X-Men, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm 45. So, you know, my era of of comics when I started reading them was like early 80s stuff, you know. So weird 
stuff like Conan and like, yeah. you know, that, that sort of era. But the comic that really grabbed me when I was like six or seven was The Dazzler. I don't know if you've ever heard of this comic. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you came to exactly the right podcast yeah. to talk about the Dazzler. We're obsessed. We have done a bunch of coverage, just uh, like back up old issues of the Dazzler. We did uh, one through four, and then we did the one where she fights the grapplers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, awesome. I love that comic. Yeah, so I mean, I just have this like incredibly vivid memory of pouring through uh, the the first issue of the Dazzler, and there's this sequence where you know, she's, um, she's this, you know, working artist and she's, you know, super impoverished and she's in her apartment and she opens the refrigerator and there's nothing in there, but a bottle of ketchup. (laughs) So she makes herself tomato soup with hot water (laughs) and this bottle of ketchup. And for some reason, as a six-year-old, this really spoke to me and it was like, okay, (laughs) this is what it means to suffer to be an artist. This is what <laughs> at 36, it really spoke to me too. So, you know, I think it's really a, a moment for artists in Dazzler. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this, this is me, man. This is me. <laughs> we all a little bit are Dazzler. I love Amora in those first comics. I love Amora generally. And then I think that she's such a good villain for Dazzler. <laughs> Because she just kind of comes out of nowhere and is like, I'm going to ruin your life suddenly. I just think it's fun. I also love that right after she eats the tomato soup, she's like on the phone call with the X-Men and all the X-Men just apparently absolutely love Dazzler as much as anybody who's reading the comic does. The X-Men are like, Dazzler's on the phone. Let's talk to Dazzler. And it's like everybody crowding around the phone. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder how derivative it was of Xanadu, though. The whole sort of, like, roller skating and, like, <laughs> mysticism and, you know, like that that weird Olivia Newton-John movie. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I found Dazzler a little bit later, uh, maybe back issues or something. Actually, by the time I came around, it was, like, early 90s. So I was reading these Dazzler comics, but it was basically because people were like, well, you are a girl, so you should definitely read this one. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? Sold. This is amazing. (laughs) I am going to read every issue of this comic. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Dazzler, see, that's interesting because then you go on to make your own company because (laughs) I'm going to completely make this like your origin story, right? Because it's like, you're just like, somebody has to speak up for the artist of the world. They're out here eating ketchup soup. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, as I was saying to you before we started recording, I've just come out of a period of being in draft on my upcoming novel. And, you know, I definitely have eaten my fair share of like, metaphorical tomato soup while <laughs> a lot of peanut butter yeah oh my god um you have with wave blue world there is a lot of different books that you all put out i can never expect what the next thing that you put out is gonna be and i think that that speaks to an interest in comics overall like it seems like you're very interested in having this expansive view of comics so can you speak to that a little bit Yeah, for sure. I mean, of course, some of it is down to the eclectic tastes of both Tyler and myself. But, you know, also, we've always had a kind of sense of um, the importance of inclusivity, you know, and of creating a platform for not just the run of the mill 
voices in comics and, and trying to expand that platform and handing the mic to um, folks in more marginalized or underserved communities and identities, right? Because like everyone reads comics, everyone who has a story should have the right and the ability to tell their story. Um, so, you know, that's kind of at the foundation of our drive to look for comics that are off the beaten track, that look for comics and graphic novel projects and anthology projects that, you know, don't just sort of like take the boxes of diversity or representation, but that that are really, you know, original and that that speak to us on this kind of elemental level, you know? And I think that's like such a perfect segue to talking about it's Pride at the time of recording. And so I have to talk about Young Men in Love, which is coming out this month, is the queer romance anthology edited by Joe Glass and Matt Miner. And I just would love to hear, you know, what made you all say, oh, hell yeah, that's something we want to publish. And, you know, something that I loved that you had in the sales copy was this is bringing romance comics back in, in a way, you know, and with a marginalized group, sometimes several times over. And I just, I loved that because I think, I think we're all suckers for a romance comic here, but they're so, they're so few and far between, it feels like. And so there's so many angles on this book, but I, I think I want to talk about, yeah, the intersection of the queerness and the romance. And again, what made you go, oh my God, yes, of course. Yeah, totally. I mean, this this is definitely more Tyler's baby, but I I definitely like you know when the project uh, fell into my inbox, I was I was like hell yes, in large part because you know my novel is set in the 1950s, and of course the heyday of romance comics was the 1950s, right? So um, I was already like very steeped in that world, and it just excited me so much to have the possibility of putting out a queer romance comic that was not necessarily erotic, you know, but that just really centered on emotions and love and courtship and that affords, I think, the ability for a younger audience too to embrace the book and to have, you know, maybe parents or caregivers gift them the book and stuff because there isn't a lot of graphic sex in it at all, right? So, you know, that that seemed like a really exciting and new opportunity, particularly as we're doing more YA. So that this felt like kind of a crossover book in that sense, you know. Well, and, you know, you just opened an interesting door, which is like thinking about YA specifically. And, and why is that a place you're, you're growing into? I'd love to hear more about that. Is that related to your personal experiences as, you know, partners and parents, you know, <laughs> is it just seeing a, a, a cool market that has neat stuff going on? Like what, what is making you want to grow in that direction? I mean, it's definitely related to, to the fact that we're parents. I mean, we have a 15 year old daughter and we have a seven year old daughter and both of them read comics. And our 15 year old Maddie in particular is like very much of a comics kid, you know, like she has grown up going to cons with us and, you know, going to all the cons with Tyler that I haven't been able to go to. And, you know, she's very into, I, I, I'm i like 99% sure that she's going to go into the business, probably on the art end. She's been, you know, sort of selling her drawings as commissions for several years now, which is um, kind of amazing. And, you know, like when, when she first started doing it, it was really sweet. She would um, take her earnings 
and buy herself something and also buy her little sister something, which like really touched me. Um, But as she got into comics, you know, at first when she was little, she like loved Usagi Ojimbo, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But as she got more into more mature comics, we found that there weren't there weren't a lot of stories that appealed to her. You know, there weren't a lot of stories that appealed to her as the kind of girl that she is. You know, she's she's not a very girly girl. She's quite tomboyish. She's, you know, she, she's a comics geek, right? So so we thought, okay, let's let's see if we can make some books, not only acquire some books, but also write some books that might appeal to our kids, you know, and that, you know, might embrace stories that are not like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and not like Raina, you know, which are amazing, right, in in their own right. But we wanted to do something that was a little bit different, that was maybe more fantasy oriented, maybe more world building, or maybe that touched on narratives that are already in YA literature, for example, like one of Tyler's new uh, middle grade slash YA books, The Orphan King, is like a remix of the King Arthur story, right? So he sort of like uses that mythology to talk about toxic masculinity and to talk about whiteness and to talk about privilege, you know? So that's the kind of thing we're interested in doing in YA, you know, something that's a little bit, a, a little bit of a twist on it, the the a wave blue world twist, if you will. Yeah, and, and as you were talking, I was like, yeah, there's that socially conscious storytelling, right? Like, it's right there baked into even how you've chosen to expand into YA. And I think that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, well, we must be really, like, annoying parents. I'm suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> if you really love comics, are you not also extremely cool parents to have? Like, <laughs> but just, you know, like, always parents. banging on about, you know, the social consciousness. But, Yeah. <laughs> But also a lot of comics in the house. For sure. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And also, you know, we've never like said that anything was not age appropriate for them. You know, like they can read omnivorously. They can read whatever they want, you know, and if they come across something that they don't understand or if they come across something that's disturbing, okay, we'll talk about it, you know. But as parents, we never wanted to, um, you know, to, to bar them from reading anything. Yep. Whenever I was a kid, I feel like all of the movies that you watch, now everybody's like, and I watched The Shining when I was four and I was scarred. (laughs) But it's very normal, right? Like, I look back on it and I'm just like, yeah, of course, because I would have eaten stuff like that up even as a kid. Like, I would have been trying to watch every horror film. It only makes sense. <laughs> some some kids just love that. And then if they don't, then they probably won't go after it, right? Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, um, totally. I feel like if you make something a taboo, then you're going to make it into something that they're going to be, like, obsessed with, right? <laughs> yeah. Don't watch horror movies and the kids just like, did you just say watch horror movies? <laughs> it sounded like it. <laughs> that isn't the only anthology. Young Men in Love is not the only anthology. And of course, there is a big one that we're getting to. But I also wanted to hear about the Deadbeats anthology um, because that was two editions, correct? Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's again, you know, more one of Tyler's babies, but you know, it's a really fun one because it's musical horror, and the uh, the sort of protagonist, you know, the 
thread that holds all of the stories together is uh, the shopkeeper who is a woman and she is um, a woman of color and and a vampire. So, you know, it's it's a it's a really fun concept. Those covers are the most iconic thing I've ever seen. Those big teeth. <laughs> I love it. I have a copy of it. I backordered it. Fortunately, it's really easy to backorder. So anybody who wants to check it out definitely should. So what appeals about anthologies? Because the company has done a few of them now. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that anthologies are actually a great way to practice literary citizenship as a publishing company because they can provide a platform for a larger number of emerging and underrepresented creators than, say, individual graphic novel projects, for example, right? And they they also, like, allow us as editors and publishers to take more risks with everything from new concepts to new talent. You, you might have somebody who doesn't feel comfortable yet sustaining the work that would be required for like a full-scale graphic novel project or even a 20-odd page comic, but they're good for like a short story. And that might be the way that they get their foot in the door of the business, you know? So it feels good to be able to discover new talent that way. We had Amy Chu on the podcast a while back, and she was talking about the importance of having anthologies if you are a writer or a creator, because it's something that you can just kind of like, that was a thing I published, you know, like I was in this collection. And usually it'll give people a good sampling, not only of their work, but a lot of the people who are kind of coming up at the same time and or you know, that's kind of the fun thing about an anthology is you end up choosing a lot of stories, right? That some of them are by people who are super new to writing and some of them have been doing it for a super long time. And just that uh, mix of experiences, I guess, is also pretty neat. Completely. No, I, I entirely agree. I think it can be really, you know, one career building, but also community building, right? Because you're introducing people to each other and you're creating threads throughout the community. I mean, I feel like Embodied, which is which is my baby, you know, Embodied is um, the first comics poetry anthology of its kind. I feel like when we were making that book, which was really at the height of lockdown, I got a real sense of community from, from doing it because, you know, we were so isolated and we were not able to go to the conventions that we normally go to. I wasn't able to go to you know, the writers' conferences that I normally go to, which is where I see most of my poetry folks. So by creating this book, we made this kind of virtual space for ourselves to, you know, maintain our sense of togetherness. Yeah, I'm I'm vibing off that hard, Wendy, because I, you know, we have been doing the podcast prim- primarily during the pandemic. We did not plan it that way, <laughs> um, but that is absolutely the case. And then our, again, another one we didn't plan that way, our our fiction anthology, Decoded Pride, decodedpride.com. It's out in full color PDF now, folks. Um, you know, we really have felt that that feeling so much of that sense of like, we're all in this together, you know, different ways. Obviously, it's different being an editor versus a comic creator versus for us, we also do prose. And uh, Sarah does illustrations for all the pieces. It's super cool. But there is just this sense of like, we're together, we're working toward a common goal. There is like something besides the unending tunnel of 
the pandemic that is happening in my life. So I, I, I think that's really cool. And, you know, I'm curious when you say you felt that community, was it through the editorial process? I know you also have a, a poem, Birth, I believe, in, in the anthology. I would love to hear more about sure. that. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely mean in the editorial process because, you know, in editing it, I was reaching out to a lot of my poetry people and Tyler was reaching out to his comics community. And so I was meeting a lot of, well, meeting virtually, you know, a lot of these these uh, artists for the first time. And he was meeting these poets for the first time and, and they were meeting each other and, you know, discovering new ways of collaborating together. So, so that was, that was really exciting and really community building, you know, the sort of conversations that we were having about forging this new creative process and this new kind of hybrid form, I guess, that created a space, I think, um, within the ugly, scary things that were happening outside. They, They created this space within our minds, I guess, where we could make something beautiful and just think about something else, you know, <laughs> like, like just, just focus on something other than, you know, not only the pandemic, but also at that time, like, you know, all of the horrible political calamities that were going on, right? That makes sense. Um, I actually had some questions about deadbeats. In particular, um, I saw that there was a Kickstarter uh, in order to get it published. And I wanted to know, um, as far as like running like your own independent like publishing company, did you find that doing uh, so, um, like social media, like fundraising and things of that nature, did you find that it was as lucrative as you thought? Or did you think that it was like way too much work? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it's certainly not lucrative. Right. But it's a way to be able to make the thing. It's it's a way to be able to raise the capital to, you know, pay our uh, contributors what they deserve to be paid and to, you know, make the books as beautiful as as they deserve to be. But, yeah, the workload is is immense. You know, I think having done Kickstarters is so often over the years, Tyler in particular has um, gotten his system down. You know, he's uh, he does all of the shipping himself. He's got like a little shipping station on top of our washer and dryer, actually. <laughs> you know, like it, like the, the shelves above the washer and dryer have all of his shipping materials. And he like does all of the packing like on top of the washer. And, you know, he has this like really anal system for, you know, making sure each book is packaged perfectly so that it doesn't come with any dents to you and the kids sometimes will put like little stickers on your book and stuff like that you know it's definitely got the kind of like personal touch to it um but it's an enormous amount of work for sure and I don't know how these guys do it like I don't really deal with the kickstarters to be honest like I'm definitely more on the editorial end and on the like you know branding end and aesthetics end so yeah, I mean, my my hat's off to Tyler and, and the rest of the guys who run those Kickstarters. Very cool. And in relation to Deadbeats, how did the interview process go for contributors? Um, there's uh, Che Grayson. There's just like a whole host of like amazing like creators that are a part of that project. And I'm just curious to know how you prompted them for that anthology. Oh, well, um, you know, I wasn't one of the editors on it, but my understanding is that the the prompt 
for the stories was the idea that in this music shop, there are all these different objects in the shop. And each story was supposed to pick one of those objects and create a a backstory that was like horror-based about the object. That is very cool. I'm pretty sure that like going through all of those submissions was mind-blowing. But yeah, I definitely really, really liked that anthology. And it was actually Sarah that referenced it to me um, because I had no idea. But yeah, the cover is also very amazing as well. Um, I'm a horror filmmaker, so... Oh, cool vampires, and also a member of said punk community. So I was very much uh, enticed by the cover, um, particularly. So I think that is just amazing. Glad you like it. Whenever you do decide to put out the call for any anthology, is it basically you have some people in mind that are on invite? Or is it just a totally open submission process? Yeah, I mean, we generally have a list of people that we have in mind who we think might be uh, interested in a particular project and we do solicit them. I mean, if we were to open it, I I think that the workload would be literally impossible. (laughs) Yeah, we go through a lot of submissions every year for Decoded because that's how we do it because we kind of are looking for this uh, different mix, I guess. But then sometimes I think about that and I'm like, would it be easier or like better And then it's like, well, maybe a different project will do it in the way where we go, hey, we have you in mind. (laughs) Like, let's do this project if you want to. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I really take my hat off to you for for doing it that (laughs) way. It's I'm I'm sure you get just flooded with emails. (laughs) We do. I mean, it's just not possible for us to do it that way because we're balancing so many different projects and, you know, balancing so many different roles in, in life too, that, you know, we've, in order to, to make these books, we've got to streamline our process. Oh, and you get to have a greater intentionality behind it, right? Because I feel like a big part of us doing Decoded is always to be a little bit surprised where we go, oh, this is what kind of anthology we're doing, I guess, <laughs> this year. And it always has queer creators, but it, I mean, that could mean anything, right? So yeah, it always it always kind of surprises me at the end of it. I'm sure that there is an element of surprise regardless, though. Oh, Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for Embodied, for example, um, the thing that surprised me the most was how important the lettering was. I mean, not that letters aren't the MVPs of comics in general, but like in particular for Embodied, I felt that that was very much the case because in translating the poetic form into sequential art form, they had to do a lot of the heavy lifting of how to render the words on the page in such a way as to convey the spirit of the poem. Um, Not only the spirit of the poem, but also the spirit of the story that we created around the poems, you know? So like that, that was a totally new thing that we were asking them to do. And they did it amazingly in my opinion. Definitely. It's, Definitely a standout feature of Embodied. I'm so glad we're back on Embodied because you just described something that I really want to learn about, which is the process of taking, you know, poems are visual. 
definitely. But they're a different kind of, they're a textual visual, right? And marrying it with comics, which are textual visual, but also a different kind of visual. We all know what I mean, even if I don't have the right words. I read in an interview with Wawak, Women Write About Comics, you called it a process of project curation. And so I guess I just want to know, how did you bring the two pieces together? How involved were you with the art process? The, you know, were people showing up with the the poems and, and then you were sort of marrying that to some art? Like, just tell me everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, um, I mean, first of all, we had a very clear intention with this book, right? It's um, an intersectional feminist comics poetry anthology. So in terms of, curating the creators who were going to be on the book, we had a very clear intention to try to find the most regionally, generationally, and ethnically diverse crew of non-cis male poets and artists that we could possibly find. And that included letterers, colorists, and cover artists as well. So that was first and foremost what was on our minds. We started with the poets. So we've got 23 stories or, you know, comics poems in the anthology. And I started out with a list of, I want to say, 70 people. And then I pared that down to probably about 50 people who I solicited. And, you know, as as you probably know, when you ask people for stuff, not everybody comes back and, and uh, even replies to your email. Um, so, you know, what we wound up with was a good number, you know, for an anthology. And so, you know, the brief was, hey guys, can you please send me some poems that um, speak to your experience or an embodied experience with womanhood, femininity, the feminine, you know, what what it is for you to uh, be within or to commune with the body of the feminine, right? So, so that's that's a pretty broad brief. And what was really exciting about that was that we, you know, as you probably saw if you read the anthology, uh, we got a really, really wide mix, not only of topic, but also of form, right? Like some of these poems are formal. We've got Diane Seuss's amazing sonnet, and some of these poems are very lyrical. Some of these poems are very spare. You know, you've got a really broad range. And we wanted to pair that broad range of poetry with a really broad range of art as well. So, you know, that that was up to Tyler to, because, you know, he's got this sort of Rolodex and encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, who's out there and who's doing what. And so he came up with a list of possible artists that we could solicit. And when we went into, you know, he would show me their work, um, generally online or in books. And we started to kind of, you know, cross-reference like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to put this person, this artist together with that poet? And, you know, we found that we wanted to not only marry the styles harmoniously necessarily, but we wanted to sometimes clash styles or we wanted to sometimes, you know, create a kind of like friction between the art and the poem, right? So probably in much the same way that people produce music, for example, you want different levels, you want different arcs 
to, to form. And so, you know, that was part of our thinking too, to, to have a diversity of visual style, I guess, as well as the sonic style of the poems. Then when it came to introducing the artists to the poets, that was really interesting because, you know, some poets had more of an idea about what they might want the script to be like. And some poets were just like, I have no idea what's going on here. You just do it, right? So, um, you know, sometimes that process was really collaborative. And sometimes it was just really up to Tyler and myself to create the story that would then be illustrated by the artists. So, you know, comics poetry, just to step back a second, comics poetry is a hybrid form that mixes the syntax of comics with the syntax of poetry, right? And so there's a real history behind that, you know? It has its origins in like William Blake and illuminated manuscripts and concrete poetry and image poets and and all this sort of stuff. But something that we wanted to do here that was maybe a bit different was we didn't just want to illustrate the poems, right? We didn't just want to, you know, pull some images from each poem and, and um, you know, have that appear alongside the text. We really wanted to create sequential art narratives, like actual stories that, depending on how narrative the poem was, would sometimes coincide with the story of the poem or would sometimes be entirely made up by us, Right. So that was an exciting process. And that was a surprising process because when we solicited the poets and when we solicited the artists, we didn't know what we were going to get. We didn't know how much Tyler and myself were going to put into it. So, you know, after we came up with the scripts, we would oversee how they were interpreted. Um, There were a lot of emails back and forth between the poets and the artists and us. And then we decided, along with the letterers, how to lay out the verse, you know, so that the poem and the art would amplify each other and not like, you know, one wouldn't overtake the other, you know. And and a lot of that came down to um, came down to the letterers. Like I was saying, you know, they, they were just really so central to making this work. Um, and then we also wanted to print the original form of the poem at the end of each story just to kind of showcase the process of transformation, you know, that each poem underwent. And we also have process drawings at the back too, just to give a little bit more insight into the creative process because, you know, we kind of made it up as we went along. Does that answer your question? I am, uh, yeah, I am just like tripping (laughs) over here. Um, I had... (laughs) Thinking of illuminated text in that way had never occurred to me. And like, it makes perfect sense. And I, I, I love it. It's so exciting. Yeah, I mean, they, they both really, you know, I think one of the things that drew me to graphic novels and comics as an adult, you know, after I discovered my love of poetry was that, you know, even though at first glance they might look so different, they actually have a lot of similarities, right? I mean, both forms engage in the use of silence, and distillation, and both are really very much about the relationship between different parts of the page and the interaction between negative space and the visual content, you know, like what you can see versus what you can't, uh, what is said versus what is not said, you know. So there's a lot of dramatic use, I think, of silence there. 
both visually and sonically. So I, I find that to be really exciting because, you know, when you read poetry or when you read comics, there's a real dynamism, I think, that is afforded to the work by the reader. You know, like a lot of the interpretive work, a lot of what makes the art come alive is the reader or the viewer, right? And in that sense, it it makes it into a, a very vibrant medium in a way that, say, I don't know, prose is probably more passive in that sense, right? Because you just kind of take take it in. It's a it's more of a quiet medium, right? I mean, like going back to sociology a little bit, there's a there's a theorist named Marshall McLuhan who talked about the difference between hot mediums and cold mediums. So cool or cold mediums are like um, television, for example. You just kind of take it in passively. Whereas a hot medium is something that requires you to be really switched on in order to take it in and interpret it. So I feel like comics poetry is like a super white hot medium in that sense, right? Because like it requires the reader to be so in it. And each reader can take something different from it too, right? So it's it's very dynamic. I was thinking about how poetry, yeah, it's always been visual in this way because whenever I was first reading this, I was like, oh, it's really neat to see visual interpretation of poetry. And then you're just like, wait, but that's actually kind of looking at things pretty wrong because Anytime I've seen somebody read their own poetry, there's a performance to it. So there was always, even outside of explaining what something looks like or something along those lines in a poem, there's always been a visual component to it, right? So I kind of was thinking, too, that that's part of it that makes this be kind of like, oh, I can't believe that this is the first one. I would have thought that this would have existed already, (laughs) I guess. No, I totally agree. I mean, it's the first anthology. Of its kind, but it's it's certainly yeah. not the first, you know, um, comics poem collection, right? But those are generally like right. one po- one poet or one artist would create one, you know. So it's more cohesive. But this this is the first anthology for sure. But yeah, I I agree with you. There's definitely a kind of theatrical component to it, right? Um, and poetry, and certainly my poetry is is very visual in the sense that, you know, really relies on the line breaks and the stanza breaks and the negative space. The poem that I contributed to the anthology, Birth, is a trisyllabic, well, it's what I call a three-by-three poem. It's a trisyllabic tercet, which means that there are three lines per stanza and three syllables per line. Um, So I developed that form as a way to kind of like choose your own adventure. Like there are no commas, there are no periods, there are no capitalizations. So, you know, it really depends on the way it's read in order to imbue it with meaning. You know, there are multiple ways that the poem can be read and that each line can be read. I love that kind of poetry. <laughs> it's such a, it's it's like each time, it's both choose your own adventure and each time you find a different layer or a different journey in it. Oh, so fun. I mean, I think that, you know, when I when I read the work, I have a tendency to read it the same way every time. Right. But it it really mm. interests me when I get feedback from readers where they're like they, they give me like a totally different interpretation. And I, and, and I find that to be really exciting. That's awesome. I love that. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's me, Sarah Century. You might know me as the other person who's been talking on this podcast. (laughs) You know, me. So... (laughs) I'm asking once again, (laughs) the Bernie Sanders meme. (laughs) I'm asking once again to rate. I am asking once again to review. Rate and review our podcast, which, you know, if you're still listening, I'm hoping that you're having a good time. If you're arguing with us in your apartment, that's okay. Because sometimes I listen to podcasts to argue with them in my apartment by myself (laughs) and the audience of my cats too. Perhaps I've said too much, but if you... <laughs> oh, I don't have anywhere to go after this other than go ahead and rate and review, won't you? You, you kind of have taken us there, danced around it. But something I wanted to hear a little bit about is, you know, that movement between academic and artist and analytic and yeah again artsy and you know for me i find that if i go a really long spell from learning something you know whether it be reading a book or you know working on some of the languages i'm learning you know whatever something like that i i my creativity will sort of suffer and so i find that like feeding my brain feeds my art and i'm curious if that's the case for you and then also i'd love to just know about like were you just like in your classroom one day like you know what poetry That's what I should do now. Like, I would love to know about how that transition happened in your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, poetry was actually my first love. I would say I fell into academia, Um, even though I had always had like an interest in it. You know, I when I was in high school, I wrote a lot of poetry and I was also co-captain of the debate team. So, you know, that that was sort of like that kind of encapsulates the what what I don't like to think of as a divide anymore, but I think that when I was younger felt like a divide, right? Like you were saying, between the analytical and the artistic. But I had an intention initially of becoming a writer. Like that's kind of all I felt like I was truly good for, basically. You know, even though I I did always have this interest in the political and the social world. And, you know, I do have an analytical side to the way that I think. But, you know, my, my great love was always literature and creative writing. So I had a pretty early start um, in the literary world. I started publishing by the time I was at the end of high school. I actually like won the National Scholastic Award for writing. And then when I was in college, I continued publishing and 
Um, I went to college in the UK. I went to Cambridge University, and there's a writing journal there that people generally, when you have work in there, um, you get headhunted quite quite often by literary agents. So I was one of the people who was headhunted by a literary agent at the reading um, after I published a poem in the Oxford and Cambridge Maze anthology. That's that's the literary journal, and um, you know I was really young. I was, you know, 21, 22, and I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And, you know, I didn't come from a family who had knowledge, you know, who had sort of cultural capital of the kind that they could, you know, tell me what to do in this sort of situation. But basically, I did what you should never do, which is I went with the first guy who asked, right? Like this, this agent... Uh, approached me. And, you know, I was just so thrilled to be asked by anyone at all that I didn't even think for a second, are we a good fit? Like, does my work really like speak to what he wants to put out? Do we communicate well together? Any of these questions were like, it didn't even occur to me to ask them, basically. So long story short, it was not a good fit. (laughs) And, um, you know, poetry doesn't make any money, right? So he was like, okay, so I can't publish any of your poetry, even though I picked you up on the basis of of poetry, but you need to either write a novel that, you know, you need to be either like the next Amy Tan or whatever, um, or you need to write a film script. So, you know, I didn't have a novel in me at that time, even though I do now, but, um, I uh, had done a lot of theater in college and I had also uh, done a lot of student film. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try to write a script. So I did write a script that had a Chinese American protagonist. And I was told that it was unsellable as a result and that I could either change my script or I could write another one or we should part ways. So I did not wish to change my script. And so, you know, my very first foray into having an agent was, uh, you know, we divorced very, very quickly. And so instead of doing, you know, once again, what you're supposed to do in that situation, which is to, you know, just realize that you weren't a good fit and to dust yourself off and get back on the horse, I was like, okay, so I guess this means um, I'm not cut out for this. I guess this means I'm not a good writer and that, you know, this isn't the business for me. So I better figure out what I should do instead. And so I went back to grad school and I was, you know, really ashamed that this had happened. And so I didn't even go back to the English department, which is where I had been. I did my my um, BA and MA in English literature. I didn't even go back to the English faculty because I was ashamed. So I went next door to the sociology department because I was like, you know, very dramatic because I was in my early 20s. I was like, okay, so I am going to leave behind the world of make-believe and the world of literature. And I'm going to go into something where I can say something substantive about the world. And also actually right at that time, I had already decided to go back to grad school, but right before I started my MPhil and PhD in sociology, 9-11 happened. So that also felt like a really important moment to, you know, to turn my attention to 
the the real world, as it were. So then, you know, I actually didn't write another word in terms of creative work for 10 years. I didn't write for 10 years because, you know, that was such a sort of like ego injury, I guess. Um, But interestingly, it was becoming a parent that brought me back to writing. So, you know, having my first child just kind of pop the cork off of my subconscious. And in the first year of her life, poetry just started pouring back out of me, you know, like for the first time in 10 years, I, I heard the music of the words again, you know, and that's, that's kind of how I experience it. Um, it's kind of like this frequency that's either on or off. And thank God since then it's been on, but you know, that frequency just switched back on quietly at first, but then louder and louder. And I could hear the music of the words again. And, you know, from those poems that I wrote in the first year of my older daughter's life came my first poetry collection, Turn, which um, took a long time to get published, took a long time to revise. I'm a very heavy reviser, but also took a long time to get published because I had been out of the game for so long. I had been in academia for 10 years and I didn't have an MFA and I didn't have any of those sorts of connections or community that that generally lead to publication, but I kept at it. And, you know, the book, the manuscript was rejected over 50 times. And I can't say specifically how many times because I lost count. That's how many times it was rejected. But then finally, when I found an amazing publisher, Sibling Rivalry Press, it was then a finalist for the Oregon Book Awards. So, you know, never say never and never let some dude tell you that you can't. So that's the end of that story. (laughs) Oh, that was amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> like, I really appreciate how much of your, like, you just, like, showed us your heart. And that that means a lot to me. You know, I, I it's interesting, too. I, I think Sarah and Monica and I have all dealt with, like, a lot of intense rejection. And there are these moments, you know, that for me, I, I left writing for a long time, too, because I got some really intense feedback in college. And I was, like, a first-generation college student. And I was like, I don't know what any of this means, I guess. I'm not a writer. <laughs> Same here. Um, so it's interesting to hear that story. And I'm like so glad that your awesome daughter helped you get the music back. That's really beautiful. That touches my heart. Yeah. And and then uh, somehow I, you know, after a few years of writing poetry and um, after publishing my second book of poems, uh, I started to cheat on poetry with fiction. <laughs> and, and now... Um, I'm, I'm about to put out my first novel. So that was an interesting process because, you know, my first time around in the sort of like literary rodeo, I was in my early 20s. My second time around, I was in my 40s. And that was a really interesting time to uh, to get an agent, you know, because I really knew who I was and I knew what I wanted. And more importantly, I knew what I didn't want so, you know, I I felt like I was in a much better position to find a good fit. And I love my agent, Jamie Carr at the book group. And that felt really redemptive in a way. It felt really like healing and corrective. Um, the book group is actually incidentally all women, which, which is exciting. Um, and they have a very collaborative way of doing business that I really respect. 
and that, you know, is, is great for authors. Yeah. And I'm really excited to, to be going into the fiction world, which is another kind of new terrain for me with, uh, with this novel, which is called King of the Armadillos. And it's coming out with Flatiron Books in 2023. I will say actually, too, about King of the Armadillos that the sociology was not lost. I think that, you know, a lot of my work as an academic, uh, you know, found its way into this book because this book deals with immigration, identity. It's a coming-of-age story, but also a portrait of a family in the 1950s, an immigrant family. And it also deals with issues of illness, disability, stigma, because it is set in uh, the Bronx in New York City, but it's also set in Carville, Louisiana, which um, at the site of the National Institution for the Treatment of Leprosy. So it's about a teenage boy who gets sent to this leprosarium where he meets a bunch of other teenagers. And it's about his process of healing, not only physically, but also emotionally. And he finds that he's an artist. And so, you know, his coming of age has to do with that as well. He falls in love for the first time. We have drama and love triangles on both sides, both at Carville and in New York City. And um, this book took five years to research. It was very heavily researched. And I went to Carville to perform the research. And the reason why I was interested in this topic is actually my father was a patient there from uh, 1954 to 1963. So Carville was very much of a secret, but at the same time, it was a part of the mythology of my family. You know, I was I knew about it from a very young age and I was intrigued by it from a very young age. And it is in some ways a really magical place. You know, like when I say an institution for the treatment of leprosy, you probably think one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? But actually, certainly by the time my dad got there in the 1950s, one, it was curable. And two, it was a really progressive community. It was like oddly very patient run And a lot of the sort of advocacy that they did around lifting the stigma of people with Hansen's disease, which they prefer to call leprosy, a lot of that sort of way in which they advocated for themselves underpinned the HIV AIDS movement later, which is really interesting because, you know, in some ways it was a similar form of stigma, extreme stigma. So, um, you know, a lot of my sociological training, I think, went into not just doing that process of uh, research in the archives, but also in the kind of thinking that I did around the intersectional issues that my characters faced. You practically answered my question because <laughs> I was going to ask about how your background in sociology informs you on how to write your characters and to actually think about what they would experience based on whatever identity they exist in within the world um, and how you um you know you said that you didn't write for ten years because you had that fluke with like you know people not accepting your stories because they were definitely something that were very personal to you and, you know, what you wanted to see out in the world, but how you took like your own academic training to like 
create characters that would make people think about like their own positions in the world and kind of utilizing sociology as a way to bring a sense of awareness to the people that read your work. Right, for sure. It's kind of a lens, I guess, through which you can see stories, maybe. And and also, you know, I think my training as um, a sociological researcher made it easier for me to run interviews, you know, like I, I know how to get people to tell me stuff. <laughs> so that, that, um, that was helpful too. And, and also just to, to know how to like trawl through the enormous archive that they have there. Um, so, you know, that, that was a balancing act, I would say, because like first you do all the research and then you kind of throw it all away in a sense, right? Like I did way more research than I needed to because really what you want to do is to let the research feed the story. You don't, you don't want to, you know, find the story in the research. You want it the other way around, you know? Yeah. It's almost like you uh, integrated the research into your DNA and then wrote your story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Exactly. I love the archive. I know Sarah is big on the archive and Monica is big on the archive. So, in, you know, it's daunting to jump into an archive, but it's so, it's such a testament to human resilience, right? Like the things like that have been preserved through time and what someone thought was important. And yeah, sometimes that's done by the people who maybe we don't care what they thought was important, but things like the queer archive we talk a lot about. And it's neat. I don't know. It's fun to do research-based work because it's like talking to the past too. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, one of the the heroes of the book and, you know, one of the heroes of Carville in real life was um, a queer man, Stanley Stein, who started a magazine called The Star, which wound up having an international circulation. And he somehow, he was like this very charismatic man who um, got to Carville in, in the 1930s before The Cure was found in the 40s. So he was heavily disabled and he was blind and he couldn't even read Braille because the Hansen's disease had destroyed the nerves in his hands to the extent that he couldn't feel. So um, he had to have everything read to him. Um, But he was this incredibly charismatic man. And so he somehow became friends with these movie stars. He became friends with, uh, very close friends with Tallulah Bankhead and Marlena Dietrich. And, you know, through these connections, he was able to um, get this international circulation for his magazine, which was at the core of this sort of, you know, social activism project that came from the Carville community to, you know, as he put it, shine a light on Hansen's disease. So that, that was really amazing. That sounds so interesting. This whole, I, you know what, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> I was going to anyway. You didn't have to work very hard to sell me on this. But it sounds really cool. And the idea of having to do that much research, I think, is always daunting, but kind of fun. I've been thinking about it because I do so much research. And then separately, <laughs> I do so much fiction writing. And I was thinking about doing something that was a little bit more historical based. And then I was like, let's be easy, like, and just make it easier (laughs) and pretend. But then you have to do world building. So in some ways, it really isn't that much easier. But I was wondering if that's something that you thought about consciously. Were you trying to do something that was, it was important to be a historical influence? I mean, you know, the story 
the story was inspired by real events, right? And the story was inspired by my dad's experience as a teenager at this place. So it kind of had to be historical fiction in that sense because it wouldn't it wouldn't have made sense otherwise um, because that time period was very specific in terms of the kind of like, I don't know, I, I'm just making up a term here, but like the Carville Renaissance, right? Like the time in between when the cure was found and before it emptied out, essentially, where it was the most thriving community. Um, so I didn't really have a choice in that sense. It had to be set in the 1950s, but that definitely, you know, created some obstacles. Like uh, I I have done so much work to make sure that um, I don't have any anachronisms in the book. For example, I've had to check every single reference. I've had to be very mindful about um, language, certainly, too. Yeah, just, just stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, I think that whenever you whenever you do fiction, whether it's historical or not, world building is such a huge part of it, and it's so difficult. I, I actually also find time to be very difficult. You know, like how how do you grapple with the passage of time in in your novel? You know, like that's that's one of the harder things. And also voice, right? Like I gave myself a pretty tough job in this book because I have multiple voices and multiple POVs and two intersecting storylines, you know, um, that occur in two different places. Like the main storyline is about Victor, my teenager, and it's the coming of age coming of age story at Carville. But my B storyline is about his dad, Sam, and the woman that he's in love with, Ruth. Um, and they're in New York City and they have their own drama going on too. Um, and their their own POVs and voices. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, I had no idea where this conversation <laughs> was gonna go. <laughs> The next book is going to be a comedy, though. I'm going to make it a little easier, <laughs> make it a little easier on myself. The next one is is a comedy. It's a satirical comedy, and it's called MILF. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> ah, MILF. <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually. It's a. The protagonist is a sociologist who studies oh. MILF porn, <laughs> and that's a real thing. There is a journal for the study of pornography <laughs> and, and it's a sociological journal and um, it's both really interesting. And, you know, if you have a 12 year old sense of humor like mine, really funny. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I think I went into the wrong field. Um, <laughs> BRB, I have a new idea for a job. <laughs> I was I was going to say, Sarah, that's right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll laugh. I'll probably find a lot of humor. I'm sorry. I exposed. Yeah. Well, fortunately, nobody can see a slight blush um, (laughs) that I have right now. But yeah, I wanted to ask really quick uh, about the poetry anthology. A lot of the proceeds went to the International Women's Health Coalition. Is Uh that correct? Yeah. yeah. How did you choose that organization as something that you thought was really important and wanted to donate to just because there is so many, <laughs> there's so many different places that, you know, are nonprofits that can use money. So I'm sure that even just that choice was a little bit daunting, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the choice of that organization in particular was because uh, when I was an overseas student in the UK, I had an abortion and that was the organization that helped me do so. So that that is why it was so important to me. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. I love stories like that. Abortion is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And particularly as the mother of uh, two girls, I'm very worried about that. Uh, Yes, that's actually my day job. I work at Planned Parenthood. So I like connect people to abortion care all day. And yeah, it's very, very scary times that we're living in right now. Um, And I think that um, as more people come out with their stories about these types of things, I think that it will also awaken people to the threat of people's bodily autonomy Mm -hmm. becoming at stake, because that's really what it's about, right? It's just like taking power away from marginalized people. Um, And so I think that as artists and writers, uh, we definitely have a responsibility to talk about uh, the things that matter most to us. Um, And I take that within my own work um, that I do with my writing and things of that nature. So absolutely. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, we have a couple of stories in Embodied that touch on abortion. Bassam is is one that's about an abortion. And um, my poem Birth actually also touches on the abortion. I thought that it was really important actually to speak about the fact that, you know, as a woman, you can have a very wide variety of experiences around fertility, right? Like I've had an abortion, I've had three miscarriages, and I've had two children. And that is a very normal thing. Taking the stigma away from it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the normalization of of abortion for, you know, in women's stories, in in mother's stories, you know? I was thinking about whenever I was a kid and my grandma was basically just like, yeah, we have to have abortion forever. And I was like, okay, sold, got it. And (laughs) that was pretty much the end of the conversation. What an amazing grandma. Really cool grandma turns out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't realize that not all grandmas were like that. But my grandma had a lot of interesting personality traits uh one of them was for sure just being like nope it's needed it's totally normal never question that it's a needed normal thing pretty much love that might she might be concerned today (laughs) she was always like i vote democrats just because they always have abortion rights backs and i was like pretty recently i was like oh grandma lived in a in a different time, I guess. Where you're in, like, a, oh, in a different time. <laughs> things, are, things are different now, Graham. <laughs> uh, Wendy, I just wanted to ask, you know, I read this really cute interview with you and your husband, and I was like, are you kidding me? And I think it was with Pop Culture Headquarters, maybe, was the site. And you were talking about how when you work on creative projects together versus apart, you actually see each other more. And I just think your relationship sounds really cute. Like your whole house sounds like the cutest place ever. And uh, I'm entirely too old for you to adopt me, but (laughs) it has crossed my mind. I'm also like not that much younger than you, so it would be weird (laughs) on several levels. (laughs) You'd be like, this is an adult. (laughs) 
So yeah, that was weird. But I would just love to know a little bit more about being creative with your partner. And and I know you're creative in multiple ways, but I just, it sounds like you do really cool work together. And I just want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I love that question. That's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. I mean, we've been married for almost 17 years and we've been together for almost 19 years. So how do you keep the spark alive, right? Part of our falling in love was definitely, you know, through our mutual creativity, you know, um, and kind of recognizing that in each other and supporting that in each other. But then also when we became parents for the first time, um, as it is for most people, it was like, you know, a real punch in the face, right? (laughs) Like we had no idea how hard it was going to be. Um, and we were, you know, on our own away from family in the UK at that time. So it was just the two of us and baby Maddie, who was a handful. And that was when we started writing American Terrorist together. So that was our first big creative collaboration. And we discovered in doing that while Maddie was an infant that it created this space. It created this like separate space away from the mundane, away from the diapers and the feedings and, you know, the domestic drudgery to come together in this like creative way, in this creative collaboration. And, you know, part of, for me, the excitement of it isn't just the kind of like, oh, you know, this is so lovely, we're together, and this is so romantic. It's actually in the going head-to-head. It's actually in the being really um, honest with each other about what's working and what's not working and kind of, you know, arguing back and forth about story and about a dialogue. You know, I'm, I'm sort of the main dialogue person, but Tyler always wants to keep in his, like, dumb dad jokes. So, you know, we, we fight like cat and dog about that <laughs> and have this kind of... <laughs> yeah. and he's that's so like pleased with that's himself so too. cute <laughs> <laughs> like he will read over like one of <laughs> one of his old comics and like chuckle at himself over the dad joke that I allowed him to keep in you know like <laughs> yeah so you know I think I think like in most relationships, it's that kind of um, differentiation, you know, it's that kind of ability to hold firm in your own beliefs and respect the other person, but also respect yourself and have that kind of push back and forth that um, actually creates this kind of spark. You know, it's that that to me is very sexy that, you know, we're not pulling any punches that we're of, of course, you know, respectful, uh, but that we are fighting really hard for the work. You know, we're fighting really hard for the story. So that's kind of hot. That confirms everything I thought your relationship <laughs> is adorable. I'm going to cry. <laughs> that's a beautiful story. Yep. I'm, I am crying just a little. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's there are times when we're off so, doing our own projects where, you know, we kind of we're in the same house, right? But we kind of miss each other because, like, even though the the way Tyler puts it is that you know when I'm deep in draft, it's like I'm away with the fairies, you know. Like I I keep enough spoons to try to be really present for the girls, but you know 
with with him, it's like, you know, I know he's going to be there. And, you know, it's kind of like I go on a little vacation into the 1950s every once in a while. And like, he's he's the same when he's working on his books. Like if he's working on Mezzo, for example, or the next issue of The Orphan King. But, you know, one of the things we also enjoy is editing each other. So he's editing my Uh, I have a YA project and a middle grade project in graphic novel form. And so he's editing me on those and I'm editing uh, The Orphan King. So that's that's another way that we can come together and fight over dad jokes. (laughs) There's a lot of dad jokes in The Orphan King, too. I was going to say that that's how you must know that it's the one or whatever, because I was like, if I went through a Rolodex of everyone I've dated and was like, would I let this person edit me? Would I let this person edit me? And I was like, wow, nightmare. No, I wouldn't. So so I find this impressive. This connection sounds truly wonderful. And maybe someday, you know, we all find somebody who we're willing to let edit us. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it legitimately requires a lot of trust. And it requires a lot of um, self-knowledge, I think, too, and humility, because it's like you have to know what your own strengths and weaknesses are and what their strengths and weaknesses are and, you know, come to a point of like complementarity. Right. So, yeah, it's like a trust fall. (laughs) I'm crying again. This is wonderful. Okay, so. Speaking of a wave blue world, pretty much. So what do you all have coming up around the bend? Because we've talked a lot about stuff that people can go buy right now. But then also there's stuff always coming out from you all. So what's up? Yeah. So, of course, Young Men in Love, which we already talked about. That's our next anthology. Um, There's also Mezzo, uh, number two which um, is coming out soon. That's that's Tyler's book. And it's of Mesoamerican fantasy, which is uh, which I find really exciting. Let's I got see. the the promo for the second issue. So I'm really excited. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm yeah. Glad well, for everybody there's to, another to book that required an enormous amount of research and world building. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, um, there's a book called Secondhand Rose which we're really excited about. That's kind of a little bit more in the future, but that's uh, by Martha Tomasis. And um, that's a really exciting YA book, which deals with superheroes and the fashion world. So we're, we're excited about that too. Um, and Crash and Troy is also coming out. And let me see what else. Um, Tower is another book that's coming out too. Bored. You're all just bored. Nothing going on. Not books you're publishing constantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Books coming out of our ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, convenient place to keep your books, I feel like. <laughs> uh, if if folks wanted to find you online, both Wave, Blue, World, and you as an individual, where could they find you? Um, so awbw.com. So you can you can find us. Uh, a wave blue world over there. And me as an individual, I do have an author website, but I am about to make a new one actually, since I'm going into fiction. But my current website is wendychintanner.wixsite.com. So that's more of my sort of poetry author site. Uh, And then is there anywhere on social media that you are sending folks to either for yourself or a wave blue world? So Wave Blue World is, uh, we are everywhere except for TikTok because we're old. Um, (laughs) um, 
So we are on Instagram and we are on Facebook and we are on Twitter. And uh, you can also find Tyler and myself on all of those platforms, although I personally am not too active on Twitter, but I'm fairly active on Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. So we will put links to all of that in the show notes, listeners. So you can click the three little dots next to this episode and click on all the fun links we'll have for you. There's a lot to check out here. This has been awesome. I've had a great time. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to, to be here with you guys. And this was a super fun conversation. I have so much to think about. I feel like we covered so much. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've done a lot, like a lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I'm only just, you're doing I'm great. only just starting. I ain't dead yet. <laughs> hot, hot. Hell yeah. Well, we'll have yeah. you back for the next book and the next book and the next, of course. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Patrons, you are the heart and soul of us. And, of course, our wonderful sound editor, Kate. Thank you for making us sound awesome. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.